0: love to hear you sing. It sounds so good, and I think about what the church means and I made this cover for my notes. It looks kind of small church and black and white. and I, where I work, usually I, I put a cover, but I don't write anything on the cover because I, if I get caught, I don't want anything written on there so that the police might see. And so this time I got really brave and I made a little tiny the church on the front because I was coming to America. <laughs> there was freedom here. So that's, that's why that's there. But that's not really, that doesn't represent the church. And I think about what, maybe what does represent the church. I don't know, I look at, I look out at you all. It's so warm and good and so much is so familiar. And I, I remember one time I was standing up talking to a group of people, least as many people, probably more, they were all just sitting on the floor and all barefoot. A lot of them were really old. And I remember there was this group of old ladies. They sat up front because their their hearing's not so good. Their eyesight's not so good. They don't have glasses or hearing aids or anything like that. They're really poor. But they're sitting up there on the floor. I remember there was this one old lady and I was teaching. I have no idea what I was teaching. I don't remember, but I remember she was getting ready to spit. I could just hear She's getting up her cheeks, you know, and I just, I kept standing back. <laughs> I didn't know where I was going to go. And I knew what she was going to do. And I just kept waiting, and pretty soon she let go. Whew, missed my feet. And I was so relieved because I could kind of put that out of my mind and just proceed then. Um, that That's the church too. That's a different culture. It's a little different place. People do their things differently there. And, and uh, I was distracted because she kept... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say it. She kept putting her foot out and smearing it around. I think she's trying to make it go away or something. Uh, so we have our distractions in times like that. Heidi, you kind of know what that's like. I know she traveled with us out to western China one time where it's, to a little village. Things are different out there. About a month ago, I was teaching in a church in Cambodia and it was so hot it was like I don't know 95 98 degrees out there hot and humid and and I was really tired I'd worked pretty hard and oh, I was getting you know kind of cooling off and getting my thoughts together here comes this old lady and you kind of have to appreciate this because in Cambodia oh 25% of the population is that right was was killed and um, maybe nearly half in the rural areas and there all the christians were killed except maybe about 200 and there were very very few survivors this old lady apparently i never could totally verify but she apparently was one of those couple hundred that survived all, all the killings in cambodia at that time and she was there and i just still remember her. i'm sitting, oh, i'm just still recuperating and she walks in the door she's barefoot and she she only she walks like this she was 80 some years old and nobody knew for sure how i don't think she knew how she was but She's carrying this little water bottle like this. She's coming up here like this, and her legs are all bent out. She comes up and hands me this water bottle like this, and I'll just never forget that. In the name of Jesus, just a cup of water like that. That's the church. and It's not this black-white thing. And If there's one thing I hope you can take away from you is that whatever the filter is... I don't know, when I was younger, I think the church to me was sort of like church cleaning I mean you know we were on church cleaning duty had to go clean out the dust bunnies shake the rugs and that was kind of church and then there was something just kind of colorless about it I can tell you what that's just not the church that I know today It's something beautiful and vibrant and alive it's made up of people who sing together whose voices blend together whose lives blend together it is truly that unity it's that thing that that God assembles together that that gathering of people that truly is the church and we started yesterday talking about the seeding the sowing the serving and the sending and we talked about the seeding and as I think about that how did the church of Jesus Christ begin and I'm just going to look here at a little clue I'm going to look in Ephesians chapter 3 where to start? I'm just going to start here in the last part of chapter nine, uh, verse nine. Chapter three, verse nine. That um, I'll just start in nine, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Something was revealed when Jesus came to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church, the gathering of people, the manifold wisdom of God. How? according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I guess the thing that I I see in that is there's something eternal about God's purpose. The conception of the church somehow existed in eternity outside the realm of our time. Far back in the past, God imagined this thing, the church, and it came into being. So, the origin, the conception of the church was far, far back in God's mind. Israel was a manifestation of the chosen people of God. They're called the Kahal or the Ekklesia. 75 times, Kahal's translated Ekklesia, the Hebrew translated into the Greek. The word that Jesus, and his disciples used for the gathering of people, the church. It's not just that you know, black and white thing, is it? It's people. Assembly, the gathering together of people. And, but something changed when Jesus came. And one thing is, I know Israel was looking for a Messiah. They're waiting and waiting. And I think, I suppose if a very, very expecting mother just came walking up the aisle here and we all saw that she was very, very expecting, we would all, it would probably occur to us that something was going to happen. She probably wouldn't just stay that way. Something was going to happen. That's where Israel was. They knew something was going to happen. They didn't know when. And then something did happen. And Jesus came. And something happened in the ecclesia, the gathering of people that did change. I I would say, some people say that Pentecost was the birthday of the church. I I understand why they say that. I'm not sure that's the best. Because I think the conception of the church was way back in eternity past. I'm not sure we want to limit the church quite that that much but however you may see that something definitely happened I would say it this way the church got its breath of life the baby was born something was new now there was a visible head Jesus Christ now there were gifts which would be distributed in the body and made manifest so something did did change there and so that's what, when I think about the church and the seed the origin how did it begin what was the seed? What came forth? That's a little picture, I hope, that captures that. Let's move now on the, to this sowing. This and here I want to look at the history of the church. I would like to think of this as the makeover of the bride. This is the time where the bride is not of the kingdom, but the bride is in the kingdom on earth. We do live here. This is our dwelling place. God designed it that way. I know we have citizenship in another kingdom. And we also live here. The fact is there's snow outside. There's sun streaming in the windows. We're in this building. We eat food. We sometimes don't feel so good. And sometimes things go wrong. We're not in heaven yet. That's still still around the corner. There's We're still waiting for the groom. There's this waiting. There's this Period of sanctification that, that is going on right now. And, and so here's this here, imagine here's this blushing bride. She's excited. The groom has stepped away, returned to his place of dwelling. She is in her place of dwelling, gathering her bridesmaids around her. She is filling her lamps with oil, trimming the wicks. She's got her garments all clean and ironed nicely, no, no wrinkles in them. And she, uh, she's participated in mikveh sort of baptism. Uh, She's ready. She's working, but she's waiting. No trumpets yet. She keeps thinking about it. Every night she goes to bed. She just listens and imagines, thinks about Him. He's coming. He's coming for a pure bride, and she wants to be that pure bride. She wants to be the thing, the object of His desire. And He has set His desire upon her. And that is, this, that is what the church is. Sometimes though, the bride forgets. She gets a little sloppy. Spots get on her dress. And sometimes the bride doesn't even do so well. Sometimes maybe she flirts with other, others. I know, that's unfortunate and it must break the groom's heart. I would think that, I don't know, how would you feel if you were, if you were a groom and your bride, you're busy working in the harvest or something, your bride is over there and you made this commitment, you're engaged and you're, you had this deep love for each other and you found out she was, I don't know, just kind of flirting with other guys and things. How would you feel? Would you want to just go there and get her? Would you want to just say, well, I guess that's her choice. I don't know what kind of feelings you'd have. How do you think Jesus feels? I don't know, but what you want is a pure bride. You want somebody who's really sold out, who's given their heart to you. If you're going to be married, wouldn't you want that? And we wonder sometimes, as we look at Christianity, and you see a little bit of everything going on out there, and you think, well, is there a remnant? Is there truly a people who are serious? Of all the Christianity out there, maybe the better question is, am I? Rather than looking around and worrying so much about other people, am, am I? Better start right here at home, search my own heart. Does God have a reason to sing over me? Am I bringing rejoicing to his heart? The choices that I make, the imaginations of my heart, what I look at, what I listen to, do they show respect? Oh, I know. So we read Edgar book and we know that men like respect, don't they? And so, do we show him that respect? Do we show him that lordship? That he's lord of my ears, lord of my eyes, of my hands and my feet and my mouth. He's lord of my heart. He's lord of all that I am. And there is nothing that he does not get. Does he know that? I want to, if you'll turn with me to Hymn 337, I want to look at some lines here. The title is, The Church's One Foundation. Let me go through some of these phrases here for you. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Now, I know we talked yesterday, I don't think I will today, I'm not sure yet, but about the foundation. What is the foundation of the church? Is it Jesus? Is it Peter? Is it uh, the apostles and the prophets? Um, what is it? And I think one of the answers we come is that we are all lively stones, but fundamentally, foundationally, at least it's very, very clear that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. That's the approach that this song would take, and it's, it's correct. She is a new creation by water and the word. From heaven, from his place of abode, he came and sought her to be his pure, holy bride. With his own blood, he poured out his blood. He bought her. Paid the bride price. And for her life, he died. Not just his eyes, but his whole body. elect from every nation. Who is the church? Should we say our Father in heaven? We mean all of us, all the people over in um, Ellensburg, Pasco, Nigeria, Argentina, Norway, Cambodia, uh, our grandparents, generations back. He's all of our Father, isn't he? There's something there I think captures the essence of what the church is. It's not just this, it's not dust bunnies that underneath the crib. We have to pull out. It's not just this black and white thing. It's living, breathing organism. It's people. It's assembly of believers. And if there's one thing I hope we can take away from this, it's that I know in America we have denominations. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that. I will argue in favor of denominations. I don't know if that will surprise you or not, but I intend to. But however that... that may strike you most of the world doesn't much of the world doesn't know it where i come from in china they have no concept of lines between churches and people they wouldn't know how to create them i'm not saying they don't have their fights and struggles and schisms and divides they do as much as everybody else does but in turn the the kinds of sense of division of between churches like like we have here like well who can come who can what do you look like what are your What's your doctrine set? What is your traditional pattern? I think historically we didn't like the word tradition too well. "Well, well, We do it because the Bible says so. It's not tradition. But I think we've come to realize that actually our practice of what the Bible says is played out in terms of, of tradition. And there's nothing wrong with that. Traditions are good. they are ways we make sense of, of, of our, I, there's a word that keeps coming to my mind. This is a map, I don't know if you know it. Um, I'll probably write all over it, so I'm, this has nothing to do with the map. But I'm thinking of two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, you certainly know, that just means true doctrine or true dogma okay that by that I mean those truths that we know are absolutely true orthopraxy is a word you may or may not be as familiar with orthopraxy means the true practice of those truths there's many people who know the truth they may even hold it in unrighteousness as we heard about last night but orthopraxy is a very different thing it is how do we practice those truths that we know and people sometimes practice them a little bit differently and we get patterns so that we can do things decently, in order, with some kind of form. That's good. As we travel around many different nations, mostly in China, we encourage people to form patterns. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So that you have good orthopraxy, so that you don't have chaos. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride with His own... Okay, verse 2. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter is salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. I hope I can change a little picture of the church. If you have a a notion of the church like I have kind of had in the past, that tradition was the church, I hope I can change that. I know this feels a little risky for me, but it's something I think is important. The church is not a tradition set. The church is the gathering of the people of God. And if you can somehow get that vision and you can see that people whose traditions may be different than ours also are the children of God. And you might say, but they're not doing it right. They don't do it like we do. Well, you know what? Maybe you can share some of your vision with them. Maybe they do some things better than we do. Maybe, they have, maybe we both have great orthodoxy, but our orthopraxy is a little different, but we can learn from each other. I want to learn. I don't want to exclude somebody else who might have an idea that would bless my life. I'm not talking about compromising truth for ecumenicalism. I'm talking about orthopraxy. And if you think you're doing it all right, hallelujah, I'm glad you are. Wouldn't you want to share that with people? And sometimes, Judy and I, we go to places, most of the churches where we go, you know what, sometimes their orthodoxy is not very good. That's why we're there. Their orthopraxy sometimes is really poor. That's not what I'd like. I'd like to be surrounded like heaven with all these wonderful people and just blessing the Lord and all think alike, all in one accord and with one mind. That would be beautiful, but that's not why I'm there. And so, if their orthopraxy isn't right, we hope to invite people to move closer to God's heart, to have a better, more truly ortho, that is true, practice. And I would like to hopefully share with you that kind of vision of the church. It isn't what's in it for me. It's what can I do for the glory of God? What can I do to build this kingdom? There is church. There's the beauty in the the thing. If it comes down to just a a tradition set to keep, it's probably going to get old and stale and smell like old popcorn. It's going to be dust bunnies under the crib. If it's about the glory of God, it's about people. It's a gathering of souls together. There's going to be something that happens that happens when I hear you singing together in four-part harmony. And there's something that blends together and it's one song and it's beautiful and it's glory to God. and It's like the sunrise this morning. You could just... Feel, oh, you could just feel the smiling of God. And when you sing, I can feel that. Can you feel that? If you want to feel it, open up your heart to that and say, Lord, show me, reveal more of yourself to me. Will you show me how much you love me? Will you show how much you love these people? Will you show me how much you love the church, the gathering of assembly of believers? And if their orthodoxy and the orthopraxy isn't exactly right, Will you show them how much you love them and draw them toward your heart also? There, I think, I hope, is a notion of the church that you'll find helpful. Verse 3, Mid toil and tribulation, tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed. and the great church victorious she'll be the church of rest. It's not yet. Hard right now. It's not fun when there's police outside looking for you, and you're in church. It's not fun when the police come and they take your children away for days, and they tell you that you're going to, they're going, you'll never see your child again if you don't recant, and give up your faith in Jesus. And I've seen, I know a case where a woman did recant, give up her faith because she thought she would lose her child. I'll, I'll give you this testimony though: none of the children did. I've I wasn't going to tell you that story, but I'll just tell you really quickly. The police came into a house church in China and arrested all everybody, and they took them away, separated the parents from the children. They put all the children in a van, and they told the parents, they said, you will never see your children again if you do not deny Jesus. This wasn't very long ago, a few years ago. They took the children and said, you deny Jesus or you'll never see your parents again. And they begin to abuse them verbally and in many ways to harass them and intimidate them. And there was one girl that I think she was thirteen years old and she told the little children, she says, Just just sing just sing. That's all. Don't do it. Don't answer anything they say anymore. If they hit you or whatever, just sing. And so she led them in singing. And those children sang and sang. No matter what the police said to them, they just sang. And they took them and they took children into separate rooms. And they tried again. And for several days, they kept those children there. And they kept harassing them. And, and you know what the children did? They remembered the words of that, of that 13-year-old girl. And whatever the police said to them, they just sang and they just sang the police would question them and say deny Jesus he's not true you don't really believe do you you'll never see your parents if you don't admit there is no God and the the children would just close their eyes and sing and after three days they let all the children go back home and not one single child had turned their back on Jesus none of the parents did except one mother and you know what My heart goes out to her. What would you do? I know we say, say, I uh, I don't know. Could I endure persecution? And I think that's why we say, oh, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The answer is, this old flesh might not make it. But by the grace of God and the power of God, we'll make it. We'll make it. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Ah, those who've gone on before. That's the church too, isn't it? It's not just a church, a gathering of people in one place. The local church is one view of the church, but it's also over many, many places. Not just America. And it's over time. Reaching far, far back. I don't know the comprehensively what God's view of the church is. We're going to find out someday. What I do know of it is as beautiful as the sunrise this morning. Oh, happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. I'm so thankful. So thankful for the faith and testimony of the church that's before us. And there's one thing I'd like to give you here. There's a little concern that I would have for you. Oftentimes we talk about the remnant. And I mentioned the remnant already this morning. And I think it's easy for us to get to thinking, well, there's maybe some sort of scarlet thread of the remnant that gives me validation for who I am. That I'm in the right church. I'm in the right place. Because the scarlet thread of the remnant, we could trace it back all the way back to the church of Jerusalem. And that's probably not true. That's not what the remnant is, I don't think. Is there some sort of a thread that goes all the way back? I don't know. Probably not. God has no grandchildren. If there is, I think it's meaningless and I would be concerned about it. It's because God has no grandchildren. Each of us must own Him completely and thoroughly for ourselves. We don't just get membership in a church. How many times have I grown up heard people saying, well, He's a member. She's not a member. You know what? That doesn't have much to do with anything. He joined church. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not criticizing that, that I'm just saying that that has very little to do with having an authentic saving relationship with Jesus Christ, being part of a gathering of those people that are God's heart and understanding that that's people around this globe with all kinds of skin colors. I've sat in churches before where there was 70 different nations assembled together, all praising God with many different kinds of orthopraxy. And I'll tell you what, that was glorious. It was a little four-view into heaven. I don't know what's going to be bowed down before the throne of God saying, holy, 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 but I've seen a little bit of it on earth. And I wonder if it might not be a little like that. That's the church. Can we sing this song?
1: The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord.
0: Thank you. That was beautiful. A little bit about the history of the church. The church got off to a really good start after the engagement, waiting for the wedding. I think of Paul who took off and, oh, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. He he was gone up here and he got struck down and he ended up going to Damascus and out in the desert, back to Damascus, back to Jerusalem. Things didn't go so well. Ended up back in Tarsus, which was his hometown. Uh, can you see this map okay? It's not, the map in your Bible is actually a little bit better than this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, he was there a while, maybe 10 years. I don't know. Barnabas um, said, hey, could you come down here to Antioch? Okay, Antioch, uh, Maratima, 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 however you say it. And he... Um, wanted some help down there. Possibly there was a lot of religious um, refugees, maybe from down here, who'd gone up there. Anyway, there was a church at Antioch, and the church at Antioch probably wasn't very far from Aleppo, Syria today. Not all that far, um, in distance. And Anyway, so they took off and went down to, uh, to Cyprus, um, lost mark, I think, up at Pergamum or whatever it what, uh, was. What, I said that wrong. Perga. Uh, anyway, went up to uh, Lystra, Derby, Iconium uh, through this whole area of Galatia um, setting up churches went back Church of Antioch sent him out again on a second missionary journey this time because uh, John Mark hadn't worked out so well uh, I believe that um, Barnabas and Mark went down this way Paul and Silas took off went up across this country they got the Macedonian call they ended up going up here and, and going up through uh, Philippi thessalonica Bria. anyway then backed back down to antioch sent out a third time paul things didn't go that well paul took his report back to jerusalem um and he drugged somebody into the temple probably shouldn't have done it and they ended up in prison ended up up here somewhere um in caesarea maratima in prison for a long time ended up on his infamous boat ride back to Rome. He may have gone out of prison for a while, may have gone up to Spain, some speculation about all that, but the, the church got off to a pretty good start. I mean, wow, it would be really great if we could set up churches that quickly and that well. Maybe we could if we would. I don't know, China's a little hard. Our situation is different, but other places, maybe it's entirely possible if we would do it. Uh, we see it happening in other countries, which is phenomenal, the growth that's happening in Asia. Um, boy, how some of some of our people could go there. Uh, they're asking for it. They're saying, "Well, people come? It just seems like where we go. I, I can just still see you know, this little short pastor with black hair and his glasses. and I, It burns in my heart this one time. He says, do you have any people that will come? Well, let me think. Maybe. Could you come back? could you come, we, we need you over here, we need you over here, we need you over here. Wow, I can't, you know, my is going to run out. I've been here two months already. I, and so that's kind of our life. And so, yeah, the call is out there. There's a need. I, I think that that, anyway, the church got off to a pretty good start. In some ways, it got off to a bad start. Paul ended up in prison. Persecution came along. Um, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you desire to live godly? You will suffer persecution. And I wonder what persecution means in your heart. And I wonder what we've encountered. We're not looking for persecution. We don't want persecution. I just wonder with what kind of courage we have stepped out, if we have insulated ourselves so well from persecution that we don't encounter it. I can remember being in Western China and little Muslim boys spitting at us. Is that persecution? Not really. Nobody's ever beat us. I have a a friend, a Canadian friend, who got beat up really badly by the police. They mistook him for somebody else. Um, Foreigners are pretty safe traveling abroad right now. Things can happen, but you know. Oh, we've fended off pickpockets. Is that persecution? I don't know. We really haven't encountered personally that much persecution. I don't think you should get looking for it, but the people we work with do. I have seen the deep wounds and big, huge, gaping holes where they quad with hot irons and jabbed people and stuff in there. Some of these people, the tortured bodies, their hands, and they break their joints. We have held those hands and touched those people. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. And yet they don't really seem to feel sorry for themselves. If the world hates you, Jesus said in John chapter 15, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Peter says, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The point just being that you can kind of expect. It may not be that easy. If you're looking for safe and easy, Christian walk may not be that. Heresy was in the church. That was another problem the church had to deal with. Legalism, Judaism was a big problem. Uh, I'm not sure how thorough your notes are. My notes are, I have some Bible verses and a little bit more in mine than you have. Um, But, legalism, the other extreme to legalism uh, was antinomialism. Judy, that might be a word to write up there if it's not in your notes. Is that word in your notes? Antinomialism? That's a word that you will encounter antinomialism means anti-law those people who are opposed to any kind of law yeah Yeah. I'll leave it be don't worry about it and the what that the way that comes out today is kind of once saved anything goes okay and it really doesn't matter how you live Gnosticism I'm not going to go through all these heretical ideas but some some common ones Gnosticism uh, had a lot of strange ideas about angels and spirits and God and his human existence and different levels of heaven and Gnosticism was a very broad term for a lot of different kinds of thinking. Um, Interestingly Gnosticism preserved a lot of the Word of God and a lot of the early church practice really well even though we would say it was heretical because so definitely was heretical. They were also real detail-oriented people so curiously there's a lot of benefit Um, scholarly benefit and knowing you know what what did early church practice look like because they documented it really really well so gnosticism um gnosticism today would be a little bit maybe like some of the i don't christian science new age sorts of ideas but that was back then maybe a little more extreme it was it got pretty strange sometimes romans ephesians galatians they address all those kinds of issues We're told to test the spirits, and if you wonder about heresy today, heresy is in the church today, and we do need to be careful because we do know that there are, as we heard last night, there are evil spirits, false prophets, and false teachers, and those will be in the church. Just know that's true. And so I wouldn't get excited about it, just be really aware of it, and we need to test the spirits we also know that I think back in the in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 14, there was the prophets who were saying, "Oh, peace, peace and safety, peace and safety," but they were lying. Yeah. And I think we, we could encounter that today, even in the church. People who say, "Well, this is the voice of God. God told me this, or God told me that," they may not be telling the truth. Just be wise. Just be wise. I just give one little example of that. I was working with a group of Christians one time, and I, I think there was some real problems in the church, but I was sitting in the audience waiting my turn to get up and speak, and they were doing some, the worship and the music, and it was getting pretty wild for my flavor of appreciation. And I remember one of the, the song leaders up there saying, well, you know, the, we've been hearing, we've been having these visions. God's coming to us and telling us this and this and this. And my Chinese is not good enough that with all the r- ruckus and everything, I could make out everything they said. But here's what was interesting to me. I don't know what all they said, and I don't know what the truth of it was. What I do know is that after the service was over, they, all those leaders came in for counseling. And you know what they told Judy and I? They said, we've been having these dreams at night and demons have been coming to us and telling us all these horrible lies, telling us to jump off cliffs and kill, it, kill ourselves. And, and, and I'm saying, you know what? Don't just believe everything that you hear out there. We had a little bit of work to do. I want to talk a little about the history of theology. Probably as we look at the history of the church, this is an interesting way to look at it. Uh, the history of theology, what causes a change in, or a shift in theology? There are several things. worldview, how we see the cosmos, the sun, moon, stars, everything that exists. How do we think of heaven and hell? Social pressures, like how, what effect does the news media or the internet have on how you see the world? Compromise. Isolation. Those are all factors. Some of the key issues in the range of dogmatics. Doxy is referring to dogmatics. The range of issues in true dogmatics, that is those things we're certain of, would include some of these. I'm just going to give really a lot of this next little time that I have. is going to be pretty quick, just surface skim here. The Bible. And the questions that people have looked at theologically over time, is it God-breathed? Is it man-written? Does it have a true authority? I would. To, you can write down as much as you want. I don't expect you to get it all. I just kind of want you to get a wash of how people have thought and thinking has changed. I am not presupposing that this is all firmly determined in your mind that you have solid answers on those things neither is it the intent of this class to provide you a deep theology class to guide you or move you toward determining all those answers but if we're going to understand the church I think we need to understand some of the issues that exist within us and around the world and across time so the bible Is it applicable for today or not is a question. The canon. By that I mean what are those books we say are divinely inspired? There are at least 15 or more different accepted canons by different kinds of groups. And you might say, oh, well, you know, 66 books that we were handed. That's true by most of the Protestant world, but it's different for many. In fact, you'll probably find that Catholics, in fact, many Anabaptists would, would have used the, and probably still use the Apocrypha. I think if you would go back to the German Bibles of our, our forefathers, probably all had the Apocrypha in it. Uh, the King James Bible contained the Apocrypha. Our fathers, I know, every edition until 1870s contained the Apocrypha. Where did it go? What do you do with that? Well, the answer to that is, even then, the Apocrypha was not ne- considered canon. It was just considered historically noteworthy and thus included. So be at ease. <laughs> it's not like you're missing some books of the Bible. You're not. However, you might find it interesting to read. I think as you read it, it'll become obvious to you why it's not considered divinely inspired. And yet, at the same time, well, it's a pretty interesting history. So anyway, just some, some of those notes why the church has seen and felt about some of these things differently. Another issue regarding the Bible is, is it inerrant? And I think that a year or two ago at annual meeting, I think we, somebody came out with a paper addressing the inerrancy, and I think it said that if the original autographs were considered inerrant. I don't have the quote. Somebody knows it. Am I close enough? Okay. And by the original autographs, we mean those original documents that were actually written the first time. That's the original autograph. We say those are inerrant. Why do we say that? Because we have many, many manuscripts and there are some little minor differences. Little bits of maybe commentary that crept into one manuscript but not another. Maybe a dot of the I or the cross of the T or a whole word or sometimes a phrase that was introduced or excluded. And we look at that and you can be absolutely sure that this book that you hold in your hand is the word of God. I want to absolutely affirm that. I am no scholar but I have studied enough Greek to have absolute confidence. And I have in my computer, I probably have every manuscript, as far as I know, that's publicly available in Greek. And I can compare those with what are called apparatuses. And you can look and see what those differences are. I'm telling you, from my study, there is no difference that makes a doctrinal, a doctrinal difference. You'll come of, I think of like, you know, Hunia or Hunius. Who is this, a man or a woman? Well, doesn't make much doctrinal difference whether it was a man or a woman, does it? Okay, So there's, there might be some little issues there, textual issues. But when we talk about inerrancy, the thing that is, can you trust your Bible and can you trust it in English? And again, I would say you can trust it. The King James Version Bible is an outstandingly good translation. Even modern scholars today say it's a very, very good translation. You can trust it. My personal opinion, and it might vary from some of yours, I think there's a lot of other translations that are also good. I think they're trustworthy too. I know there's very strong feelings about that, and maybe not everybody would agree. But this I can tell you, this is a King James, you can trust it. If you have other questions, i would be glad to address those, but not... Not in the time that we have now. Secondly, is it infallible? Does it contain air? In other words, is Genesis just a poem or is it just a story of trying to, people trying to take ancient Near East A-N-E, A-N-E, stands for ancient near east if that's in your notes if you see it here i kind of forget where it is in your notes but ancient near east cosmology the notion is well genesis reflects ancient near east cosmology that is the notion of how the world existed from say syria down to egypt that's the what i mean by ancient near east those people the canaanite people how did they see the world? we say, well, you know, the Jews are trying to make sense of the, the biblical stories and God, and all. they wrote Genesis to kind of capture that. Is that true or not? Or does ancient Near East cosmology reflect the truth of that we see in Genesis? The answer for you is this word of God is infallible. You can trust it. It does not contain error. What about? The place of women in society or slaves or some of those issues. Those, that's beyond the scope of the class today. But this word is infallible. And if you have questions, go to your church leaders and ask them. And i can sure they can guide you. If you have other questions, ask me. Ask some of the leaders, staff around here. But you can trust that it's infallible. Other things that came up. The whole sense of right and wrong isn't the same as in America in most of the world. Our sense of right and wrong, that is guilt and innocence, comes from Mount Sinai, the Moses. That's where we get it. It's embedded. We say, well, that is right and wrong. It is for us. That's not in much of the world. Much of the world, by far the greater percent of the world, has a shame-honor system. Right and wrong, if I steal something from you, we can be good friends even if I stole it from you as long as we don't have a very strong relationship, even though you know I did you wrong. and I know that sounds strange, but it's not wrong to steal something from somebody as long as there's no loss of face or shame involved in it. The stealing isn't what's wrong. Okay? That, actually, that kind of perception prevails in quite a bit of the world. You may not like it that somebody stole something, but wrong isn't what you would call it. Okay, get even is what you might call it but wrong not. I know that sounds a little confusing I'm not going to try to explain that it's a different cultural worldview. There's another one yet which is it comes out of the world of magic fear and power which pervades much of the jungle area the more primitive kinds of cultures too. Okay so this notion of right and wrong varies I think it's important to understand this if you interface with people, unbelievers, other places. If your Muslim friends are over at Starbucks, it's probably good to be cognitive of the fact that their worldview might be different from yours. And try to listen and hear their heart and understand where they're coming from. I would not use the word sin to address a person in China. And don't come out of your chair and alarm about that. There's a reason they don't even have a word for sin. They have no concept of sin. So what do you do? We have to start with shame. Eventually, we move people to the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament, and Christians over time, sometimes many years, begin to understand that concept of sin. They get it. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It works, so we do teach the law. And then they get sin. Then they get the whole different concept, the guilt-innocent concept of right and wrong. So this is a process. Okay. Um, theology proper we could talk about pneumatology that is the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the past or the whole role of the Holy Spirit in our life now Christology was Christ divine was he just a good man Was he the son of God, truly? Did he pre-exist before his incarnation? These are questions, and I'm a little anxious about presenting this, but I'm trusting that you are mature, stable, and that you know good, reasonably good answers, and if you do not, I would like to pique you to find these good answers from trusted godly teachers, okay? Anthropology, man. Is he a body, soul, and spirit? Spirit versus material? These are all questions that the church has struggled with over time. Angels and demons. Soteriology. I mean by soteriology, the study of salvation. There's two terms that come up. Justification. How was the debt for my sin paid and when? Sanctification. How are we changed in the past, present, and future? If I'm going kind of fast, I hope to just kind of wash you in a notion that the church outside of the tradition or doctrine sets you have may have a different orthodoxy than you have and has. That's the history of the church. Which one's right? The biblical one, but a lot of people will say there's this biblical. And so we're searching for that. You can know the truth. You don't have to worry. I'm just saying the history of the church and the struggles of the church are because of some difference in orthodoxy and probably more, more greatly a difference in orthopraxy. Let's move on. Ecclesiology. What is the church? What do we mean by the church and its offices? its purposes, its essence, and of course, eschatology. That is the future events. Just, we'll just move here down through this a little bit. The, first of all, of course, in terms of theology, we have Pauline theology. The most comprehensive is the Book of Romans. Some of you want to study theology, study the Book of Romans, spend some time there. Go through it lightly, go through it more deeply. Just dig a little deeper each time. That's the most comprehensive. Galatians is good too. There's theology throughout the New Testament, but there's good deep theology there. We call that Pauline theology. Then moving forward in time, the shift in theology is what we call the early church fathers. The patristic period is the tor- formal term that we use, and we refer there to the early church fathers. I do want to make a statement about the early church fathers. Be careful that we do not venerate early church fathers. Yes, they were closer to the original source, and so that's very significant. We should take note of that. But also be careful, because early church fathers, what we often do is we pick and choose. We have a pet doctrine, and then we kind of like uh, we, um That's another word in the scripture, which means that we have an iPad idea and then we pull out cherry picking verses to support our idea. And we do that from the early church fathers. The early church fathers didn't agree with each other on a lot of things. They weren't all right. There was a lot of good there. And so when earlier yesterday I talked about apostolicity, the apostles you can trust. The early church fathers are not equal with the apostles. What I'm saying has significance because many churches today say the early church fathers' teachings are equal with the apostles. Okay, There is a danger in that. There's value in the early church fathers. I probably have most everything I can find that was written by them on my computer and I love them, but be careful you don't venerate them. God has no grandchildren. There isn't a scarlet thread of the remnant by which you have some leg up in a relationship with God. We're all sinners at the foot of the cross and we need Him. When I go to China, none of them have any kind of thread to reach back to. Their thread is Buddhism, Taoism, atheism, idolatry of many kinds. We're not better than them, they're the church too. The Patristic period. Some eras of the Patristic period, we say we talk about the Antinician, the, the era of the Apostolic Fathers, Justin Martyr, the Gnostic writers. I refer to. I know that much of what they had was heretical, but they also give us much of uh, detail of early Christian life, which is interesting. The Nicene Council, the Edict of Milan, and I think it was AD 313, and Constantine made it, changed it from being illegal to be a Christian to being legal to be a Christian. And then the churches, because of this new freedom and better communication, had the first what we call ecumenical council. By that, I just mean beyond the people who regularly associated together, got together and said, well, let's define orthodoxy because there's a lot of strange ideas out there. Okay, that's what the Nicene Council was for. And they came up with something called the Nicene Creed. Now, sometimes we hear, well, the Bible is my only creed. That's wonderful, the Bible is my only creed. But some of those creeds are very historically interesting. And those people put them together for a reason. I wouldn't rely on them to be the truth or guide, but then they didn't either. As I have talked to people from other churches, they value those creeds, but they fully acknowledge they are not equal to this. They are just simply a way of looking at it that they found helpful. So the Nicene Creed is one of those. And then the post-Nicene period, Augustine, the beginning of the Catholic Church, issues at that time were... um, uh, very very early they were this issue are we saved by works are we saved by grace the roots of extreme calvinism came out of what we call anti-pelagianism don't worry too much about these big words i just want you to know that the extremity of some of these ideas began way back then and you can see those some of those threads, if you will, that reach through the church even today and are in our churches too. We're asking these same questions. The confusion about kingdoms began, I think, with Constantine. Suddenly the church and the state were connected in a way they had never been before. And there has been confusion of church and state ever since. And I see I'm not going to have time to talk much more about that. But Middle Ages period theology was dealing with atonement. How is our relationship with God restored? By Middle Ages, things had changed in the church. The church had become very formal. The Catholic church had formed and kind of was a church, at least until about 1054 AD. And it was probably more political than religious, but there was a um, uh, filioque was the, was the French word for the notion of did Jesus come out of the Father or the Son, or both, and this is an interesting argument the church was having at the time, but it split, and so the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches, the East and West, split. I think it was probably more political than about filioque, but anyway, that was the issue of the day. A major division in the church, the Catholic Church predominated in the West, which would be our heritage, until the time of the Reformation, but during that early time before the Reformation, atonements and... How is our relationship with God restored? The sacraments are they symbolic or are they actual? Is there power when we take that bread and drink that wine? The Catholic Church said, spoke of transubstantiation; it actually became the blood and of, of Jesus or the body of Jesus. Some of you may remember down in San Salvador in, in 1980, Bishop Romero, who was a Catholic priest, and he was the communists that come in; they took over his church. They were going to use it for an army barracks. They drove him out, and he realized he had left the. bread and the wine in the front of the church, and he faced down machine guns to walk into that church to save what to him was Jesus. I mean, the body and blood. It was a very sacred thing to him. He was willing to be shot dead to go rescue that that bread and that cup. That, that, that kind of gives you an idea. He actually did get shot later for his trouble, but not at that time. The point is, is that he, how he saw that that bread and that cup, and transubstantiation. So. I'd long to talk more about this thing. These kinds of things are so interesting. Um, Bible interpretation during the Middle Ages people had more time, more money, they began studying more scholarly ways. We found many more Bible manuscripts and we started doing scholasticism, the notice the notion of studying to understand deeply especially by Wisdom by textual. We begin looking at the grammar, at the specific words that used, and say, can we figure out who Jesus was with what these texts meant? Not just by reading it or by inspiration of the Spirit, but by this textual criticism. I'm not opposed to textual criticism. I'm just saying this is the kind of thing that was happening in the church at that time, beginning to develop. It was an issue. Well, do, you, do we just pick apart the word by trying to pick apart the grammar? I mean, brethren, keep talking about the Hebrew and the Greek. Well, should we do that, or do we just trust? The, if, that, if that's a question, that's an old question. OK? Reformation period theology. The Protestants wanted to reform the church. Tetzel, you probably know that name, was selling indulgences. Go ahead and sin. Just pay your money so we can build the St. Peter's Basilica. Or, and Anyway, this is a problem. Um, tradition in the church is tradition equal to scripture and is it binding this was the issue of the reformation how binding is it because the catholic church said that the the church the people are the incarnate christ existing today and therefore the christ being an apostle the church has apostolic authority i refer back to apostolicity and therefore the decisions that are made even down to the local congregation are equal with the Word of God. Okay? You can imagine some problems coming out of that. And after a few hundred years of that kind of thing going on, the Reformation occurred for a reason. And yet the churches, churches today, everywhere struggle with it. We've been in a lot of different church congregations. I don't know any that don't struggle at some level with that issue. Communion. Does the church have power to excommunicate? What does that mean? The whole issue of Arminianism and Calvinism. The church was divided on those kinds of issues. The issues primarily there would be, does man have free will or is he just an automaton? Is he just like a robot? Or does man actually have free will? So how much free will does he have? Is God the author of evil? If God is sovereign over everything, how can evil exist? These are questions I like. Then there was a period of the Great Awakenings. There was, a, and this is kind of interesting uh, Methodism, of course, in, in Britain, and, but Pietism in Germany was a part of the, one of the Great Awakenings that was interesting. For the Lutherans, Faith alone was their key issue. For the Anabaptists, non resistance, two issues really. Non resistance was the issue. And another one was that the church should be a church for believers. You don't just buy a pew, you don't just get membership, and therefore we baptize only believers. We don't baptize people who aren't able to believe, thus Anabaptists. Okay? Rebaptizers, because they wanted to baptize people who believed. Quakers were dealing with spiritual, physical nature. Another interesting thing is the name Brethren became very important. In France, there was the French Revolution going on. There was the whole notion of uh, of, um, liberté, égalité, fraternité. My French probably isn't good. Don't laugh at it if you know French. But the notion was liberty, equality, and fraternity meaning brotherhood. So the notion of brotherhood as people had more money, more time, was, hey, we're not just peasants, we're people too. And the church realized that was true, although that was an issue in the church which I didn't have time to address. Also, I mean, some of those early church reformers thought nothing of killing peasants because they really weren't worth much. But the notion of these people began to rise up that, you know what? This gathering of people is brethren, and so the notion, but actually in the mid-1700s, brethren got attached to church names all over the place. It actually, and it stuck really well. Of course, it's German Baptist brethren. We kind of, we attach, we come out of that era too, for a good reason, and it's a very, very good idea, and it's absolutely biblical. But many churches had lost it, let go of it, along with the advent of feminism, because brethren and feminism is a little bit awkward, so hey, we could do church without the brethren thing. Um, so, <clears throat> Middle Ages, Reformation period, the Great Awakenings, many revivals, um, Sam was talking about the Welsh Revival, the Revival of Pentecostalism, Reformed Revivals, John Wesley, um, I, I'm going to have to stop here. I would just like to say this. I, I didn't get to the faithful remnant, which is one of my favorite parts. I'm satisfied with that because that kind of brings it all together. I feel like I kind of left with a lot of, wow, the church is kind of a mess, isn't it? It is a lot of struggle. That's the church. There's, there's two verses I didn't bring. That song we sang, I don't think I'm going to read them to you. They're kind of negative. Well, really quickly, Samuel Stone wrote that song, and there's two verses that at every hymnal are left out because they're very polemic. It's kind of an angry diatribe against some specific people I won't name down in South Africa who were saying some things he didn't like. He said, the church shall never perish her dear lord defend to guide sustain and cherish is with her to the end that's good though there be those that hate her ouch and false sons in her pale against both foe or traitor she ever shall prevail in general that sounds kind of good he was probably being pretty pointed with it those people knew who they were OK Though, with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, but schisms rent asunder by heresies' distress. It goes on. I'll stop there, but the, my point is, is that church history has been we really need a redeemer. We need Jesus badly. Is there a remnant? And if I'm going to boil down the remnant to this is you need to ask yourself the question: Am I the remnant? Don't cling to some thread. Don't cling to a membership. Don't cling to a doctrine set or a tradition that was handed to you. Beautiful. I'm so deeply, deeply thankful for it, but it has nothing to do with my salvation. That's a deal between me and my God. If you're the remnant, search your heart until you know. And if you want to know if you're the remnant, let me just do this one thing. I brought this cup... Jesus poured out His blood. It's not a thread that goes back in time. You're saved because you belong to the right group or the right people. What is the church? Really, what is the church? This cup of the New Testament is the communion of the blood of Christ. It's that new commitment, that New Testament. The groom pushes it across the table. Will the bride drink it or not? If she drinks it, she accepts the covenant. Do you know you have accepted that covenant? For life? Committed to absolute purity? Jesus told his disciples, he says, take this cup in Luke chapter is it? Twenty-two. I forget the, the the location. I should I should look it up. I don't have time. He says, "Divide this among yourselves. When you have communion, take this cup, pass it to the next person, pass it to the next person, pass it to the next person." I know our orthopraxy as we take a sip and pass it on. That's okay. That's an okay orthopraxy. We know in our hearts what we're doing. What we mean. This brother drank it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that there will be an image of a cup filled with the blood of Christ in the minds of each of these people here today. And in our minds, Lord, we take the cup and we drink it all. Lord, if there's somebody here who's struggling just the last couple of drops, just maybe there's something in their life, something hidden there. They want to be the remnant, they want to be true. There's some things that you need to change, Lord. Bring that change until, Lord, we can be one people. We've all drunk the cup. We accept the new covenant, Lord. We are the gathering. We are the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.